Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 10th, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard, filling in for Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have David Grimm up first with some online news stories. And then we hear from Chris Tyler Smith about sequencing the genome of mountain gorillas. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Suzanne Bard. Our first story takes us to the Netherlands, where you might find yourself looking up a lot. That's because the Dutch now hold the record as the world's tallest people. In just 150 years, the average height there has shot up a whopping 20 centimeters. As in other developed nations, much of the increase can be attributed to health, wealth, and enough food to eat. But a new study suggests there's more to it than that. What did the researchers find, Dave? Well, that's right, Suzanne. The researchers were really interested to see if this was an example of natural selection in process. In other words, were genetics also contributing to this rise in Dutch height because theoretically, for some reason, taller people may have some sort of evolutionary advantage, at least in this population, versus shorter people. Who was in the sample, Dave? Did they look at both men and women? They did. They looked at about 100,000 people across the country. They examined, obviously, their height, but also their health records, the size of their parents, their children, a lot of different sort of life statistics like that. And what they found was that taller men tended to have more children on average. That effect wasn't seen for taller women, didn't seem to have any advantage to be a taller woman. But even though it was a small effect for taller men, I think they had an extra 0.24 children at the most, depending on how high they got. This was a statistically significant effect they saw across the population. 
Okay, and how did they explain this slight advantage in terms of reproductive success for tall men? Well, I mean, first of all, they think that this could be something that's inherited. We know that there's about 180 genes that influence your height, and these account for about 80% of the variation of height within a population. So it makes sense that there could be an evolutionary way height was passed down. But you can't just have good genes. You have to have a reason to pass these down. And what the researchers speculate is that women, at least in this population, gravitate towards taller men because they expect them to have more resources. Maybe they expect them to be more successful. And because of that, taller men are at a selective advantage. And because they can pass their tall genes down, if more tall men are finding mates and more of these tall men are having children, you would expect that the genes for tallness are something that would be selected for in this population. But interesting that they didn't find similar trends for the women. Yeah, it was interesting. And they think the reason might be is because while taller men are sort of seen as more attractive, tall women often have a hard time finding a mate. So it's more advantageous to be a tall man, at least in this population, than it is to be a tall woman. Hmm. Now, you might expect men in other developed countries to have a similar height advantage when it comes to siring children. But have researchers found this to be the case? They haven't. In fact, Americans, uh, people in the U.S., used to be the tallest people on earth until they were overtaken by the Dutch and a few other countries. And so the question is, why are we not seeing these trends in places like the U.S.? And it could be because these effects are only temporary. You see these maybe for a few generations, and then everybody sort of reverts to the mean. So it's possible that this occurred in the U.S. maybe 100 years ago. It's occurring in the Netherlands now, and it won't last for perhaps too much longer in the Netherlands. Interesting. Well, it seems like there are a lot of questions that remain to be answered, Dave. For sure. Our next story has to do with size as well, but the subjects are long extinct. You probably grew up knowing that Brontosaurus wasn't a real dinosaur and that the proper name for the towering vegetarian of the late Jurassic was Apatosaurus. But science marches on, and now paleontologists have announced that the Brontosaurus is back. What changed their minds, Dave? Well, what changed their mind is taking a look at a large number of skeletons of a group of dinosaurs known as Diplodocidae. These are dinosaurs that include these very large animals like Apatosaurus, also animals like Diplodocus, Barosaurus. And they really wanted to see whether there were actually significant differences between some of these dinosaurs, and especially some of the dinosaurs that had been originally classified as Brontosaurus, and other dinosaurs, enough to grant Brontosaurus its own genus. And this all dates back to what are called the Bone Wars, which happened in the late 19th century. This is when you had a lot of paleontologists going around digging up bones, really trying to be the first to discover a brand new specimen of dinosaur or brand new species, brand new genus, whatever. And um, early on, there was a dinosaur that was found in 1877 that was named Apatosaurus. A few years later, there was a dinosaur that the same person claimed was was Brontosaurus, and that's how Brontosaurus got started. But very quickly, researchers said, well, these two animals are too similar to be classified as separate things. They're both Apatosauruses because Apatosaurus, by the rules of scientific naming, because it had been discovered first, that was the name that stuck. And so Brontosaurus, even though a lot of people have heard of it, that name has actually been out of favor for decades. So what were the major differences they found, Dave, that made them think that these actually were different animals? Well, what they found was that the uh, Patasaurus had a bulkier neck 
was even more robust than Brontosaurus, as they say. And Brontosaurus also had some features that Apatosaurus lacks. It has a rounded expansion of one edge of its shoulder blade and a longer ankle bone. These things may not seem like major things, but it's these types of differences that scientists look at to determine whether one animal is sufficiently distinct from another animal. In this case, the team concludes that they are. What was being called Brontosaurus is different enough from what is being called Apatosaurus that Brontosaurus does deserve its own designation, and therefore they're arguing that we bring the name Brontosaurus back. And it seems like with no DNA and no flesh and organs and all the other stuff that goes into making an animal with only skeletons, I mean, you really don't have much to go by. Does this study bring up questions about how you classify animals taxonomically? Yeah, you really don't have a lot to go by when you're looking at these really ancient fossils. And the researchers say this does really bring up some interesting questions about whether other animals maybe have been misclassified, whether some animals really deserve to be considered the same, maybe whether others deserve to be different. What really made the study possible was looking at a very large number of skeletons. I've looked at about 81 skeletons in the study. That's hard to do for a lot of dinosaurs because there's not that many skeletons available. So it's really going to depend on what kind of bones they have to look at. Now, why is it so important to know how many dinosaur species there were back then? Well, there's been a big question about just how diverse the dinosaurs were before they went extinct about 66 million years ago. And so studies like this are really going to help shed a lot of light on that question. I guess we can all buy our kids brontosaurus t-shirts again without worrying that they'll get ridiculed at school. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Our final story concerns something I've always dreamed of having in my house, windows that change their tint in response to weather conditions. Wouldn't it be nice if they'd do this automatically so I don't have to go adjusting the shades all the time? Smart, self-tinting glass like this is nothing new, but engineers at Case Western Reserve University have developed an improved smart glass. How does it differ from earlier technologies, Dave? Well, we did have technologies before what we call smart glass, where the glass could change color, but it required an external power source. You needed something like either plugging it into an outlet, which isn't very green, and we're always trying to develop these energies that are more efficient and run on the energy of the sun or the wind, something like that. And also, if you're thinking about embedding a lot of material in glass to make it smarter, you're sort of defeating the purpose of glass, because if you make glass hard to see through then it doesn't matter how smart it is because it's not really serving its original function. So this glass runs off energy harvested from wind and rain. How does that work, Dave? It's called triboelectrics. <laughs> and basically what it means is the power that we're talking about here is actually harnessed from friction when two materials touch. And what happens with these windows is that there's a very thin layer of generators which rest on top of the pane of glass. And they're able to create an electric current that tints the windows a dark shade of blue. And what powers these is static energy from rain. When a raindrop falls from a cloud, the contact between the water and the air creates a positive charge in the droplet. And then when the droplet strikes the glass, which is coated with this negatively charged silicone material, it actually creates this electric current because you have this positive charge striking a negative charge. And then that actually produces energy. And for the wind, there's actually a second layer of nanogenerators in the glass. It's just underneath the first layer. And this layer consists of two sheets of charged see-through plastic that are separated by nanoscopic spring coils. And what happens is when the wind pushes against the window, it compresses the 
these springs and that creates an electric current. So you basically have electricity generated both by the static electricity of rain, but also from the mechanical energy of wind. That's cool. And how much energy can this produce, Dave? In the experiments, the researchers were able to get about 130 milliwatts per square meter. That's about enough to power a pacemaker or a smartphone while it's asleep. So <laughs> not a ton of power, but you know this is just an important first step. They're saying, though, that with a bit of refinement, they, you can actually use the windows not just to tint them, but also to maybe power some home or office electronics, maybe things like self-cleaning keyboards or even sensors for security systems. Okay, it sounds cool, but what happens if it's not raining or windy? <laughs> That's the really big problem here, because the current design does not allow this energy to be stored. So you'd only be tinting when it was actually windy or when it was actually rainy, which actually may be conditions where you don't want your <laughs> windows to tint. Right. So one of the next big steps is for the researchers to figure out a way to store this energy so that it can be used later when you really do want the windows to tint. Well, I'll be waiting patiently for them to perfect that, Dave. What else is on the site this week? Well, Suzanne, we've got a story about an old idea about how the moon formed coming back into fashion. Also a story about nanoparticles that may help fight tooth plaque. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about the role of science in Iran's nuclear deal. Also, why one scientific journal is paying authors for their papers. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Suzanne. David Grimm is the editor for our daily online news site. I'm Suzanne Bard. You can check out the latest news in the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Mountain gorillas are highly endangered, surviving in only two small populations in Central Africa. To better understand their evolutionary history and genetic diversity, researchers sequenced the whole genome of seven mountain gorillas and compared them to other gorilla species and subspecies. Chris Tyler Smith and his colleagues discussed the results in this week's issue of Science. All gorillas live in tropical Africa, some in the west and some in the east. The gorillas that we studied are the mountain gorillas, and they're one of the two populations or subspecies within the eastern gorilla species. The ones that we studied came from the Virunga mountain range, one of the two only known locations of mountain gorillas, and they're critically endangered. The numbers are tiny, measuring just a few hundred, perhaps now with the help of conservationists, four or five hundred of them. The main threats to mountain gorillas come from habitat loss because of human encroachment on the places where they live. But there are, in addition, the threat from human diseases, which often gorillas are susceptible as well and may not have very much resistance to. People have been very concerned about them, and there have been intense efforts by dedicated conservationists to look after them. And as a result of those efforts, supplemented by tourists paying to go and see them, then their numbers have recovered a little bit, but they're still numbered just in a few hundred. So I think that for the present, they're stable. 
but they still remain of great conservation concern. Okay, and with all the attention that mountain gorillas have received over the years as a charismatic but endangered great ape, I was surprised to learn that their whole genome hadn't been sequenced until now, and that genetic studies have only looked at small portions of their DNA. What were the aims of the current study, Chris? So we aim to fill that gap. What we've done has been to sequence the genomes of mountain gorillas for the first time. This has allowed us to compare mountain gorillas with all the other gorilla species who had been sequenced previously and find out what was special about the mountain gorillas and then provide a genetic perspective on their levels of variation and perhaps their more general situation. Okay, so when it comes to variation or genetic diversity, what did you find? So we found that mountain gorillas were indeed a distinct population, and we see that we can distinguish mountain gorillas genetically from all the other kind. This means that in future we can recognize any gorilla from its genetic makeup. But we also found that in the mountain gorillas, the levels of genetic diversity were very low, as they are also in eastern lowland gorillas. The eastern species has lower diversity than the western gorillas. And in your paper, you found evidence of recent population bottlenecks in eastern gorillas, including mountain gorillas. How recently are we talking about, and how do genetic studies reveal these bottlenecks? We use a, a method with a slightly complicated name, abbreviated as PSMC, that allows us to look at the genome of a, a single individual, in this case a gorilla, and from the levels of genetic diversity there, to infer the population size back over the last million years or so. And what we found was for the mountain gorillas is that there's been a steady decline over the last million years. But for the last 10 or 20,000 years, it's been really low, just numbered in the order of a few hundred individuals in the genetic effective population size. Wow, okay. And you also found indications of an astonishingly high level of recent inbreeding in the mountain gorilla as well as the eastern lowland gorilla. Are there signs that all this inbreeding has harmed these populations? Well, yes, there are signs that inbreeding has harmed them. In fact, primatologists studying the mountain gorillas in the wild had already noticed things like squinting or webbing between the fingers, toes, which are signs of inbreeding. But when we look at them genetically, we see that for roughly a third of the genome of each individual, there's no variation at all. That is, they've inherited identical copies of that region of the genome from both their mother and their father. And that level of inbreeding far exceeds anything that we know about in any human population. And does the gorilla mating system itself play a role in exacerbating the problem of inbreeding? Yes. So gorillas live in fairly small groups where there's usually just one dominant male, the silverback, who is mating with all the females and fathering most of the offspring. So yes, in effect, a tiny number of the males in the population breed. And we see that reflected in extremely low diversity on the male-specific Y chromosome. So that, in effect, 
reduces the genetic population size even below the census population size, the number of individuals that there are. And looking farther back now, what does whole genome sequencing tell us about the evolutionary history and population size of mountain gorillas over the past several hundred thousand years? It tells us that the populations have been declining. It tells us that they started to separate from the other member of their species, the eastern lowland gorillas, around the beginning of that period but that there's been steady and continuous gene flow between the two subspecies. And I think that is a bit of a surprise given that they are currently confined to quite restricted regions with no evidence of current movement between them. And you also found lower genetic diversity in the Major Histocompatibility Complex, or MHC. What are the possible consequences of this? The MHC is a large and complex region of our genome. And one of the main things that it does is to protect us against infectious pathogens. So the potential consequence of having low diversity there is that the gorillas may not be able to defend themselves against potential pathogens that come along. And there's a real danger of exposure to those pathogens from contacts with humans. So if they have no protection against those, then they're in severe danger. And it's often assumed that low genetic diversity can make it even harder for a threatened or endangered species to weather potential threats. But is there more to it than that? Is there hope for mountain gorillas? So there is hope for them, and I think we can point to that in two ways. One is that their low diversity and small population size have been there for 10, 20,000 years or more. So if they've survived for 20,000 years in the past, why not for another 20,000 years in the future? But then there's also a specific feature of the population that we see from the genetic data, and that is purging of the most harmful genetic variants in the population. And this is a phenomenon that's been predicted by theoretical geneticists. But for the first time in our ape population, we see it at work. And what we see is that while inbreeding can allow moderately deleterious variants to increase in the population, then when there's a lot of inbreeding, the severest, the most harmful variants tend to get purged from the population. And so perhaps that's a mechanism that can help to protect the mountain gorillas from some of the harmful effects of inbreeding. And so that gives us hope that even with this low diversity, they should be able to survive far into the future, just if humans allow them to do that. All right, so what do you plan on doing next? The first way that we'll follow up on this study is by releasing all of the data so that anyone can use it to look at or to help with gorilla conservation, for example, by identifying captured or other samples of gorillas. We studied mountain gorillas from the Virunga mountain range, but there is another population from Bwindi that we would love to investigate genetically, and we hope that will be possible. And I think in the long term, I would like to see every gorilla from the wild have its genome sequenced so we can really derive the 
maximum amount of genetic information about them and use that for helping to conserve these wonderful animals. Thanks for speaking with me, Chris. You're welcome. Chris Tyler Smith and his colleagues write about the mountain gorilla genome in this week's issue of Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.